Okay, hey, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're continuing to go through the Life of Christ series. We're looking at the chronological look at the life of Him. And so, obviously, honing in on Jesus and the things that He said and the things that He taught and the things that He did. And um, especially today, uh, I, th- I think back upon my life growing up, if there was a sermon that I... I wish I could have heard growing up, it would have been the one that I'm going to share with you today, because I had a little different kind of understanding of what Christianity looked like. Now, most of you guys know me, and you know I'm a movie buff, especially when it comes to like 80s and 90s movies, just a huge movie buff. And so, uh, especially when it comes to the classics, you know, Die Hard and Scarface, Fletch, Iron Man, all those movies, like Tombstone. And so... What happens is a lot of the dialogue that takes place out of me, um, if you don't know these movies, then half the things that I say don't make sense, right? right, Is anybody else like that? Where, like, if I hear crashing at a a restaurant, I'll I'll say, and the flowers are still standing, which a lot of people are like, yeah, we got no idea what you're talking about. But when you watch Ghostbusters and they pull the thing out, all the, the plates and everything just gets shattered, and the only thing that's there is the flowers, and he's like, the flowers are still standing. So here's what I want to do, just to kind of get you guys going. I want to play a game, and Mike, don't show the picture until we've given them enough time to guess, okay? All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say maybe just a word, I'm going to say a phrase, and you're going to guess what TV show or movie this comes from. And it's going to start out really easy, and we may get a little bit more difficult as we go. All right? Okay. Are you guys ready? Excited? All right. How you doing? All right. How you doing? How you doing? There you go. All right. My wife will come in from work and be like, how you doing? Except I'm obviously thinking, yeah. All right. (laughs) Inconceivable. Princess Bride. Bride. Very good. Everybody should be able to get the next one. Sarah, you need to stop answering. Because you know all these. Shut your mouth. All right. You're killing me, Smalls. Sandlot. Yes. Although I want to say, hold this for a second. This is always the picture they show with this quote. Although this is not in the movie where the quote was made. It's when he's making the s'mores in the clubhouse. This is when they're talking about each other's mamas. You know, your mama's so fat and ugly and whatever. So, anyway. All right. (laughs) You're going to need a bigger boat. Jaws. Yes, the over 40 crowd's like, yeah. All right. All right. You can't handle the truth. A few good men. Yes. Very good. All right. Paul will get this one too. What we have here is failure to communicate. Anybody? Yes. Cool hand, Luke. Said to Paul Newman, said to in the direction of Paul Newman, what we have here is failure to communicate. And then the one that I'm going to 
carry for the rest of this sermon is Samsonite. I was way off. Dumb and dumber. Dumb and dumber. Samsonite. I was way off. They were trying to think of the last name of the lady, and he's like, Swanny, Swanny, Swanson, Swanny. Oh, and then they, some people put it on their luggage. Oh, Samsonite. I was way off. So there you go. It's what we will say in our household when we thought one thing and it was the opposite, all right? So if we end up going the wrong direction down the road, we'll be like, Samsonite. Uh, We just have Samsonite moments in our lives where you think one thing, you thought you knew the answer, and it was the opposite or it was not what you thought. And so we say Samsonite. And it's just a common saying, obviously, between Sarah and I. And if I think about it, because we say it a lot, it means that we get a lot of things wrong. Um, It just occurred to me uh, because we hear that in our house. And even, I think, in Christianity... There have been things in my life where I'm like, man, I was way, way off, Samsonite, because here's what I thought, and here was the reality. And so, and it can also happen with things that we just think about with God and the Bible and how we're going to live our lives, and life just seems to be filled with those Samsonite moments, and hopefully when we have them, we learn from them and we get better, okay? So when you Samsonite... Learn from it so that you can get better, so you don't make the same mistake twice. Now, when I was in college, uh, our school, Milligan College, started building these new dorms. And the new dorms were way better than the old dorms because the cockroaches were way less. But they also had cable TV access, okay, which I just thought was really cool because ESPN and all those things that I wanted to have growing up by my parents were mean parents, and they never got cable and ESPN and those things, so I'm still resentful about that. But go to college, and these new dorms are being built, and they have cable access, and so I'm like, awesome. So I got into one of the new dorms, I think by my sophomore, junior year, and we paid for the cable, and TLC had a show back then called Operation, all right? And in the 90s, (laughs) Operation was just a cool show to watch because I'm like, I wonder how they do this. I wonder how they do that. And uh, some of it was very like, oh, I can't believe they're doing that because I wasn't a doctor, I wasn't a surgeon. But they would show really, really close up in depth of operations. You know, here's open heart surgery, here's a vasectomy, that was bad. Um, here's other things that we, we would watch and we're like, wow, that is incredible. And I'm not a surgeon, so seeing this stuff is pretty fascinating for me. And I got to thinking, wow, I wonder how other things operate, especially God. How does God operate? And here's where I missed the boat on this a little bit growing up. Because I had an understanding of how he operates, and it was a Samsonite moment. See, here's what I thought. I thought that God operated by a certain set of rules, okay? And these rules are important for me to learn. And so we learn the Ten Commandments at a young age. And here are the things that you do, but more importantly, here are the things that you do not do, all right? And that's what I had in my head. Here are the things that you don't do, Jeff. 
You don't do these things. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't have sex, you don't cuss, you don't get tattoos, you don't wear hats in a building, you don't associate with any people who do any of those things. That was, the list could go on and on. And although some of those things are not necessarily the healthiest things for you, it's not what the Bible says, but it's what I had in my mind that, man, if I, if I don't do these things, then I'm going to operate in a way that God is okay with. So if you do these things, you go to hell, and if you don't do these things, you get to go to heaven. And so that's kind of what I assumed, that's what I kind of knew And I I never really learned until later that it was different than that. And let me tell you how much that wrecks people up. If that is the way that you think God operates, and if that's the way that you are living out Christianity, then you are going to be filled with disappointment in life. Right? You're going to put pastors on a pedestal that they should never be at, my youth pastor, who I thought was God in my teenage world, and, you know, he did one of the things you don't do. And he, he went to prison for six years. And that devastated me on such a high level. Why? Because I thought, you don't do these things, and you do these things, and if you break these things, you're a bad person. And I didn't break them, but you know what I did? I had thought them. And so I really wished that I had learned earlier that the fact that, you know what, there is grace. And Jesus actually came to die on this cross and offer that grace to me. And I, have, I had my Samsonite moment I, it was in my late teen years. I was like, wow, I was way off. What a terrible understanding of what it looks like to live your life for Christ completely based on rule following. But this is what religion looks like. If somebody tells you, asks you, hey, what's religion? You can say, it is rule following and trying to earn your way up to God, to work your way up to Him so that you'll be accepted by Him. And eventually someday when you take your last breath, you'll go to heaven. And so maybe your story Being raised in church might look similar to mine. And let me say this, because people from the church I grew up in, I know they listen to these messages. That was not their intent. And it wasn't what they were trying to do. It's just the perception that I had. And so Jesus tackles this whole thing a lot in his ministry. It's why he goes after the Pharisees and the religious leaders a lot because it's what they were preaching and it's what they were teaching. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew 5, we're going to start in verse 17. Today's passage is a little tricky. And so stay with me and I'm going to ask you to show me grace in the way that I present it and how I do this. But Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Last week we talked about salt and light and how you are to be both of those things. And then right after that, verse 17, here's what it says. Jesus is saying this in his Sermon on the Mount. 
he's speaking to the disciples, and there's probably a few hundred other people that are there, masses. And he says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. And so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, it says, But I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I wonder at that moment in time if there were any Pharisees or religious teachers in the crowd that heard him say that, they were like, ugh, because they knew deep down they were not good in the heart. All right. So, that's a lot of stuff, and we're going to kind of break it down. So here's the way the Old Testament is broken down. We have the Torah, which is the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so those five books basically are what is known as the law, the Torah. And then they have basically the prophets, and the prophets would prophesy about a coming Savior. And then we have what they considered the writings, and basically it all culminates as what we would call the Old Testament. And so when Jesus is talking about these things, he's saying, hey, the Old Testament, those things, don't ignore them. But when Jesus refers to the law, writings, and the prophets, that's kind of what he's talking about. But he says, I didn't come to abolish them, which means to tear it down. He didn't come to tear those things down, but he came to fulfill it, to bring it all to completion, is what it means. Now, you've heard me on several occasions talk about how you no longer live under the law of the Old Testament, okay? I've talked about that quite a bit, which is a good thing because it allows you to eat bacon like what we had this morning, which I don't know how many churches had bacon in their hospitality, but I think it's pretty cool. It also allows you to touch footballs with your bare hands. And if we were still living under the law, those things you would not be able to do, along with a lot of other things uh, that were in that. And of course, you know, there's about around 630 laws that were written, but then the religious leaders and the Pharisees, what did they do? They added on to those. So they would take a law and they would say, oh, and it means this too, and this too, and this too, and before you know it, you have thousands of things that are like, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. So we would just stay at home and not do anything in order to basically obey the law. Now, the reason we say that you're no longer required to live by the Old Testament law, we get that from scriptures like um, Romans 6 and Hebrews 8, 8, uh, Hebrews 8, 13, which says, when God speaks of a new covenant a New Testament, it means that he made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Uh, Romans 6.14 says, Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. One of the most amazing passages of Scripture in the Bible. 
That is phenomenal. And that's awesome. We no longer have to live under the requirements of the law. But then, if you were reading through the New Testament, and you were reading through Romans, and you got to Romans 6, and you thought that was good, you'd recall three chapters earlier, it says this in Romans 3.31. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. And this is the reason people don't read the Bible. Because it gets confusing, right? Which do we do? So, let's clarify a few things. The laws that are written in the Old Testament um, are usually placed into three different classifications. In fact, this comes from Thomas Aquinas, uh, who makes the distinction that they're either going to be moral, civic, or ceremonial laws, Okay. So usually they're going to go into one of those three areas. The ceremonial law was abolished when Jesus went to the cross at Calvary and paid the price. So those, you can kind of, okay, he paid the price for that. We don't have to think about that. Uh, The civic law would also no longer be in effect because we are no longer citizens of the worldly kingdom. We are citizens of a godly kingdom. And that's what Jesus came to do, to establish a spiritual kingdom kingdom. And so we, now what are we left with? We're left with a moral law, right? And so that's what we have. But here's the problem. <laughs> the Bible does not classify them into the categories. And so how are we to determine which ones are moral and which ones are ceremonial and which ones are civic when the Bible doesn't specifically say. And some of them could actually be placed in more than one category. All right? So for example, keeping the Sabbath could be placed in both ceremonial and civil. Um, The laws against divorce could be both civil and moral. And when talking about your sacrifices that you would make, uh, they could be ceremonial and moral. So you can understand how this would all get really confusing. In the Old Testament, there are two primary reasons for the law. And this is really cool. It's to, it's to basically declare the holiness of God and to give them clear direction on how they were to behave and live their lives as believers. All right? Holiness of God, this is how I need to behave. I'm going to do it life this way. Now, my wife... She would love this because she is a check-the-box kind of person, all right? So she would love to just have a checklist. These are the things that I have to do in order to be right with God. And she would just go down the checklist and make sure she does those things. The problem with the the checking-the-box-off list is that it is missing the key ingredient that God is most interested in and it's your love for him it's God's primary purpose is for us to be in a relationship with him and we're all about checking boxes we're not thinking about a relationship we're just thinking about task 
which is kind of how I grew up in church. I do these things and I don't do these things. But he wants a relationship with me. And he wants the love aspect. And that we would actually surrender our heart over to him. Surrender our lives over to him and say, okay, God, this is what it's about. Jesus is going to bring some clarity in some things. And one of the most beautiful ways that he does that is through the letter to the people of Galatia. And he does this in Galatians chapter 3, 23 through 26. He says, before the, the way of faith in Christ was available to us, so before Jesus came, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. I love that. <laughs> Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bust out the cliff notes, okay? Because as I was studying this, my mind is starting to hurt, all right? Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. From the very beginning till the end in the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. The law points to Jesus. The prophets point to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but there's a key word I want you to to hone in on on verse 17 of, of Matthew chapter 5. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, catch this word, to fulfill them. This is a key word for us to understand. Jesus came to fulfill them. The prophecies, guess what Jesus does? He fulfills them. Over 300 in all. And Jesus fulfills every single one of them. And that, even the percentage of that and how he would do that is just mind-boggling. And all these prophecies from Jesus' birth about his ministry, about his death, and about his resurrection and his role in the church, it's usually in one of those categories, all prophesied. Jesus fulfills them all. What about the law? Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 3, 21 through 22 says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. You catching this? We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, no matter who you are, this is what it's about. And so thank God for all of that. Because the very next verse in Romans chapter 3 says that, you know what? All you are sinners, every one of you, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So, 
what do we do with all of this? I think maybe a way to picture it, I was going to have a whiteboard up here, but I didn't get it, but think about a big funnel. Okay, you have a big funnel. Take the entire Old Testament, everything in it, law, prophets, the writings, everything about the Old Testament, put it in the funnel. And it kind of comes down, it comes down, it comes down, and at the exit, what do we get? We get Jesus. We get Jesus. God delivers His Son to fulfill every aspect of the Old Testament. And we are made right, not by the rules that we keep, but by placing our faith in the one who comes to save. Mark Moore, who I've been quoting through this, says it this way. So how should a Christian today deal with the Old Testament law? Here's the bottom line. Jesus fulfilled the law not by what he did, but by who he was. Just as Jesus is our temple, our Sabbath, our King David and Moses, just as he is our high priest, Passover lamb, and promised land, so Jesus embodies the Mosaic Code. It is as if Jesus is the filter through which all the Old Testament passes. Every sentence, every word, even every letter is incorporated into him. And now that nothing is lost does not imply that nothing changes. The Mosaic Code is recast in Christ, yet its purpose remains the same. I couldn't say that any better, so I just want to quote him. Its purpose remains the same. This is what it looks like, and it comes through the life of Christ. It comes through your faith in him. And Jesus is going to continue to clarify what his kingdom looks like, which is a constant theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what the kingdom looks like. Here's what the kingdom of God looks like. And I need to clear up a bunch of misunderstandings that you guys have with the unity of God because we think one way and he thinks the other. All right? And so I've got my own mindset, I've got my own heart, I've got my own human condition. And there's often times where I'm like, God doesn't understand my human condition and I could not be further from the truth. Jesus knows your human condition intimately. You are created by God. He is aware of your mind and your heart, your sin and your intentions. And there's nothing that your mind and heart are going to conjure up that is going to be shocking to God. So you're not going to think up something today and go, oh my goodness, this is going to shock God. No, it's not. He's not up there going, what are they going to do? How am I going to handle this? It's Rosenberry again. It does not shock him. He's like, I created you. I know everything about you. Inside and out. And his conversation with the religious leaders and to Jeff Rosenberry in my teen years would be getting us to understand that we are far too consumed by the outward stuff. The things that everybody sees and God's kingdom goes way deeper than that. Let me explain that. When I was growing up, what I was concerned about was what people saw. 
as long as my thoughts were not in a bubble above my head showing everybody what I thought, then I'm good. So, I kind of look at this as like an iceberg principle. Oh, man. What most people know about icebergs is what they learned from James Cameron in the movie Titanic, which is the large pieces of ice floating in the ocean. And if a ship tries to avoid it, they're going to scrape their hull and they're eventually going to take on water. And before you know it, Rose is telling you, I'll never let go, never let go. And then she let go and you sink. Anyway, sorry. All right, here's what we need to know about an iceberg. Most of an iceberg is located where? Below the surface. 90% is below the surface of the water. But if you go back to Jeff Rosenberry growing up, what was I most concerned about? The 10%, right? What people were seeing, what they're viewing. And it's like, man, I can't believe he did that. How did they know? Because they saw it with their own eyes. But so much is down below and so much is down below the surface and Jesus basically is saying, hey, all the stuff that you're arguing over and is above the surface stuff. But what I want to address is below the surface. I want to address your heart. Now at Revive, I talk about this all the time, about your heart. And the reason that we do that is because that's what God is after. When you worship, does God hear your voice or does he hear your heart? No, I have it in my own theological stance. If you have a good voice and you sound good, he probably hears your voice. But for people like me, he just hears my heart. Matthew 5, 21 through 24 says this. But you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, remember that, Jesus says, but I say, if, you even, if you're even angry with somebody, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar of the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled, to that person, and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Now, this is one of Jesus's, and I'm going to wrap it up here with this. This is one of Jesus's many, but I say statements, okay? And he's going to say it a few more times throughout the sermon. He's going to say, the Old Testament says this, but I say. And when he does this, he's talking about in the Old Testament, What it says, you've heard it say, and he's going to name the action. And then Jesus says, but I say, and he mentions the heart or the thought. So, when he does this, his but I say statements is always raising the bar. The Old Testament says this, I'm going to raise the bar and say this. In the Old Testament, it talks about tithing. In the New Testament, he says, let's talk about generosity. In the Old Testament, it says, do not murder. That's the action. But I say, 
Don't even be angry with somebody. Don't have murderous thoughts. Don't have any type of those kind of thoughts in your head. And next week I'm going to discuss this one, but he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, the action, the act of adultery. Jesus says, but I say, do not even have the thought. Don't even think about a person that way. Why? Because Jesus is most concerned with the thoughts that flow from your heart. So what's the condition of our heart? And then he doubles down on that in this passage, and he says, I want you to understand how significant this is. If you have a grievance with somebody, if you're not getting along with somebody, and you've been, and you remember that while you're here, and most commentators, they'll say it kind of applies in this situation, you should leave church... And you should do everything you can to reconcile. That's how important this is. If you're getting ready to give and you're like, well, you know what? I got a grievance. I need to go make that right. Now, does it mean that they will automatically say, no problem, everything's good? No. He just says, here's what you need to do. You need to do everything you can to make it right, to reconcile, to offer forgiveness, to offer an apology. It's what we've been instructed to do. So how's the condition of your heart? In counseling, there's usually a root to the problem that people don't realize. You know, couples will come in and they'll say, hey, we're fighting all the time, we're fighting about these things. And usually a counselor, a really good one, will find out that that is the surface. There's something way deeper below the surface that's the issue. And God kept playing this in my mind this week. It's like, man, we just need to get to the root of the issue. We need to get to the heart of the issue. And so, all that to be said, when we do these things, and we get our heart right, we start living the way that He wants us to. And this is really cool because now instead of living by rules, why do we obey God? Because we love Him. That's what He wants. Your obedience and the things that you do for Him aren't because you're trying to earn your salvation. When you give your life to Christ, you are saved. It's because you love Him. You get to do all these things to Him, for Him, and you get to be salt and light to a world. And you get to truly reflect Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for just laying this on my heart this week and What a, a moment where chains can kind of come off, where we get underneath this law bondage, this, um, just this imprisonment of feeling like we have to do these things to earn your approval. And like any loving parent, you love us regardless. 
And so I just pray that we'll start living our lives geared at the relationship and the love that we have for you. And when we do that, we'll be salt and light to the world that we live in right here in Loveland, Johnstown, Berthood, Fort Collins, wherever it is, Father God, we'll be salt and light in those areas. So help us to remember that and live it. And this we ask in your name. Amen.